Chapter Fifteen, Part Six of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital, A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One, by Karl Marx. Translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling and edited by Frederick Engels. Part Four, Production of Relative Surplus Value. Chapter 15. Machinery and Modern Industry. Section 6. The Theory of Compensation as Regards the Workpeople Displaced by Machinery. James Mill, McCulloch, Torrens, Sr., John Stuart Mill, and a whole series besides, of bourgeois political economists, insist that all machinery that displaces workmen, simultaneously and necessarily sets free an amount of capital adequate to employ the same identical workmen. Footnote. Ricardo originally was also of this opinion, but afterwards expressly disclaimed it, with the scientific impartiality and love of truth characteristic of him. See 1C, Chapter 31, on Machinery. End note. Suppose a capitalist to employ one hundred workmen, at thirty pounds a year each, in a carpet factory. The variable capital annually laid out amounts, therefore, to three thousand pounds. Suppose, also, that he discharges fifty of his workmen, and employs the remaining fifty with machinery that costs him one thousand five hundred pounds. To simplify matters, we take no account of buildings, coal, etc., Further suppose that the raw material annually consumed costs three thousand pounds, both before and after the change. Note. Nota bene. My illustration is entirely on the lines of those given by the above-named economists. End note. Is any capital set free by this metamorphosis? Before the change, the total sum of six thousand pounds consisted half of constant and half of variable capital. After the change, it consists of 4,500 pounds constant, 3,000 pounds raw material, and 1,500 pounds machinery, and 1,500 pounds variable capital. The variable capital, instead of being one-half, is only one-quarter of the total capital. Instead of being set free, a part of the capital is here locked up in such a way as to cease to be exchanged against labor-power. Variable has been changed into constant capital. Other things remaining unchanged, the capital of six thousand pounds can, in future, employ no more than fifty men. With each improvement in the machinery it will employ fewer. If the newly introduced machinery had cost less than did the labor-power and implements displaced by it, if, for instance, instead of costing one thousand five hundred pounds, it cost only one thousand pounds, a variable capital of one thousand pounds would have been converted into constant capital, and locked up and a capital of five hundred pounds would have been set free. The larger sum, supposing wages unchanged, would form a fund sufficient to employ about sixteen out of the fifty men discharged. Nay, less than sixteen, for in order to be employed as capital, a part of this five hundred pounds must now become constant capital, thus leaving only the remainder to be laid out in labor-power. But suppose, besides, that the making of the new machinery affords employment to a greater number of mechanics, can that be called compensation to the carpet-makers, thrown on the streets? At the best, its construction employs fewer men than its employment displaces. 
The sum of fifteen hundred pounds that formerly represented the wages of the discharged carpet-makers now represents, in the shape of machinery, one, the value of the means of production used in the construction of that machinery, two, the wages of the mechanics employed in its construction, and three, the surplus value falling to the share of their master. Further, the machinery need not be renewed till it is worn out. Hence, in order to keep the increased number of mechanics in constant employment, one carpet manufacturer after another must displace workmen by machines. As a matter of fact, the apologists do not mean this sort of setting free. They have in their minds the means of subsistence of the liberated workpeople. It cannot be denied, in the above instance, that the machinery not only liberates fifty men, thus placing them at others' disposal, but at the same time it withdraws from their consumption, and sets free, means of subsistence to the value of fifteen hundred pounds. The simple fact, by no means a new one, that machinery cuts off the workmen from their means of subsistence is, therefore, in economic parlance, tantamount to this, that machinery liberates means of subsistence for the workmen, or converts those means into capital for his employment. The mode of expression, you see, is everything. Nominibus moliere licet mala. This theory implies that the fifteen hundred pounds worth of means of subsistence was capital that was being expanded by the labor of the fifty men discharged. That consequently this capital falls out of employment so soon as they commence their forced holidays, and never rest till it has found a fresh investment, where it can again be productively consumed by these same fifty men. That sooner or later, therefore, the capital and the workmen must come together again, and that then the compensation is complete that the sufferings of the workmen displaced by machinery are therefore as transient as are the riches of this world. In relation to the discharged workmen, the fifteen hundred pounds worth of means of subsistence never was capital. What really confronted them as capital was the sum of fifteen hundred pounds, and afterwards laid out in machinery. On looking closer it will be seen that this sum represented part of the carpets produced in a year by the fifty discharged men, which part they received as wages from their employer in money instead of in kind. With the carpets in the form of money, they bought means of subsistence to the value of fifteen hundred pounds. These means, therefore, were to them not capital, but commodities, and they, as regards these commodities, were not wage laborers, but buyers. The circumstance that they were freed by the machinery from the means of purchase changed them from buyers into non-buyers. Hence a lessened demand for these commodities. Voilà tout. If this diminution be not compensated by an increase from some other quarter, the market price of the commodities falls. If this state of things lasts for some time, and extends, there follows a discharge of workmen employed in the production of these commodities. Some of the capital that was previously devoted to production of necessary means of subsistence has become reproduced in another form. While prices fall, and capital is being displaced, the laborers employed in the production of necessary means of subsistence are in their turn freed from a part of their wages. Instead, therefore, of proving it, when machinery frees the workman from his means of subsistence, it simultaneously converts those means into capital for his further employment. Our apologists, with their cut-and-dried law of supply and demand, prove, on the contrary, that machinery throws workmen on the streets, not only in that branch of production in which it is introduced, 
but also in those branches in which it is not introduced. The real facts which are travestied by the optimism of economists are as follows. The laborers, when driven out of the workshop by the machinery, are thrown upon the labor market, and there add to the number of workmen at the disposal of the capitalists. In Part Seven of this book it will be seen that this effect of machinery, which, as we have seen, is represented to be a compensation to the working class, is, on the contrary, a most frightful scourge. For the present I will only say this. The laborers that are thrown out of work in any branch of industry can no doubt seek for employment in some other branch. If they find it, and thus renew the bond between them and the means of subsistence, this takes place only by the intermediary of a new and additional capital that is seeking investment, not at all by the intermediary of the capital that formerly employed them, and was afterwards converted into machinery. And even should they find employment, what a poor lookout is theirs! Crippled as they are by division of labor, these poor devils are worth so little outside their old trade that they cannot find admission into any industries, except a few of inferior kind, that are oversupplied with underpaid workmen. Footnote. A disciple of Ricardo, in answer to the insipidies of J. B. Say, remarks on this point. Where division of labor is well developed, the skill of the laborer is available only in that particular branch in which it has been acquired he himself is a sort of machine. It does not, therefore, help matters one jot, to repeat in parrot fashion, that things have a tendency to find their level. On looking around us we cannot but see that they are unable to find their level for a long time, and that when they do find it, the level is always lower than at the commencement of the process. An inquiry into those principles respecting the nature of demand, etc. London, 1821, page 72. End note. Further, every branch of industry attracts each year a new stream of men, who furnish a contingent from which to fill up vacancies, and to draw a supply for expansion. So soon as machinery sets free a part of the workmen employed in a given branch of industry, the reserve men are also diverted into new channels of employment, and become absorbed in other branches. Meanwhile the original victims, during the period of transition, for the most part, starve and perish. It is an undoubted fact that machinery, as such, is not responsible for setting free the workmen from the means of subsistence. It cheapens and increases production in that branch which it seizes on, and at first makes no change in the mass of the means of subsistence produced in other branches. Hence, after its introduction, the society possesses as much, if not more, of the necessaries of life than before, for the laborers thrown out of work and that quite apart from the enormous share of the annual produce wasted by the non-workers. And this is the point relied on by our apologists. The contradictions and antagonisms inseparable from the capitalist employment of machinery do not exist, they say, since they do not arise out of machinery as such, but out of its capitalist employment. Since, therefore, machinery, considered alone, shortens the hours of labor, but, when in the surface of capital, lengthens them, since in itself it lightens labor, but when employed by capital, heightens the intensity of labor, since in itself is a victory of man over the forces of nature, but in the hands of capital makes men the slave of those forces, since in itself it increases the wealth of the producers, but in the hands of capital makes them paupers, for all these reasons and others besides, says the bourgeois economist without more ado, 
It is clear as noonday that all these contradictions are a mere semblance of the reality, and that, as a matter of fact, they have neither an actual nor a theoretical existence. Thus he saves himself from all further puzzling of the brain, and what is more, implicitly declares his opponent to be stupid enough to contend against, not the capitalist employment of machinery, but machinery itself. No doubt he is far from denying that temporary inconvenience may result from the capitalist use of machinery. But where is the metal without its reverse? Any employment of machinery, except by capital, is to him an impossibility. Exploitation of the workman by the machine is therefore, with him, identical with exploitation of the machine by the workman. Whoever, therefore, exposes the real state of things in the capitalist employment of machinery is against its employment in any way, and is an enemy of social progress. Footnote. McCulloch, amongst others, is a past master in this pretentious cretinism. If, he says, with the affected naivete of a child of eight years, if it be advantageous to develop the skill of the workman more and more, so that he is capable of producing, with the same or with a less quantity of labor, a constantly increasing quantity of commodities, it must also be advantageous that he should avail himself of the help of such machinery as will assist him most effectively in the attainment of this result. McCulloch, Principles of Political Economy, London, 1830, page 166. End note. Exactly the reasoning of the celebrated Bill Sykes. Gentlemen of the jury, no doubt the throat of this commercial traveller has been cut. But that is not my fault, it is the fault of the knife. Must we, for such a temporary inconvenience, abolish the use of the knife? Only consider, where would agriculture and trade be without the knife? Is it not as salutary in surgery as it is knowing in anatomy? And in addition, a willing help at the festive board? If you abolish the knife, you hurl us back into the depths of barbarism. Footnote. The inventor of the spinning machine has ruined India, a fact, however, that touches us but little. A. Thiers, de la propriété. Monsieur Thiers here confounds the spinning machine with the power loom, a fact, however, that touches us but little. End note. Although machinery necessarily throws men out of work in those industries into which it is introduced, yet it may, notwithstanding this, bring about an increase of employment in other industries. This effect, however, has nothing in common with the so-called theory of compensation. Since every article produced by a machine is cheaper than a similar article produced by hand, we deduce the following infallible law. If the total quantity of the article produced by machinery be equal to the total quantity of the article previously produced by a handicraft or by manufacturer, and now made by machinery, then the total labor expended is diminished. The new labor spent on the instruments of labor, on the machinery, on the coal, and so on, must necessarily be less than the labor displaced by the use of the machinery. Otherwise, the product of the machine would be as dear, or dearer, than the product of the manual labor. But, as a matter of fact, the total quantity of the article produced by machinery, with a diminished number of workmen, instead of remaining equal to, by far exceeds the total quantity of the hand-made article that has been displaced. Suppose that 400,000 yards of cloth have been produced on power looms by fewer weavers than could weave 100,000 yards by hand. In the quadrupled product there lies four times as much raw material. Hence the production of raw material must be quadrupled. 
but as regards the instruments of labor, such as buildings, coal, machinery, and so on, it is different, the limit up to which the additional labor required for their production can increase, varies with the difference between the quantity of the machine-made article and the quantity of the same article that the same number of workmen could make by hand. Hence, as the use of machinery extends in a given industry, the immediate effect is to increase production in the other industries that furnish the first with means of production. How far employment is thereby found for an increased number of men depends, given the length of the working day and the intensity of labor, on the composition of the capital employed, i.e., on the ratio of its constant to its variable component. This ratio, in its turn, varies considerably with the extent to which machinery has already seized on, or is then seizing on, those trades. The number of the men condemned to work in coal and metal mines increased enormously owing to the progress of the English factory system, but during the last few decades this increase of number has been less rapid, owing to the use of new machinery in mining. Footnote. According to the census of 1861, volume 2, London, 1863, the number of people employed in coal mines in England and Wales amounted to 246,613, of which 73,545 were under, and 173,067 were over 20 years. Of those under 20, 835 were between 5 and 10 years, 30,701 between 10 and 15 years, 42,010 between 15 and 19 years. The number employed in iron, copper, lead, tin, and other mines of every description was 319,222. A new type of workman springs into life along with a machine, namely its maker. We have already learned that machinery has possessed itself even of this branch of production on a scale that grows greater every day. As to raw material, there is not the least doubt that the rapid strides of cotton spinning not only pushed on with tropical luxuriance the growth of cotton in the United States, and with it the African slave trade, but also made the breeding of slaves the chief business of the border slave states. Footnote. In England and Wales, in 1861, there were employed in making machinery 60,807 persons, including the masters and their clerks, etc., also all agents and business people connected with this industry, but excluding the makers of small machines, such as sewing machines, etc., as also the makers of the operative parts of machines, such as spindles. The total number of civil engineers amounted to 3,329. End note. Note. Since iron is one of the most important raw materials, let me here state that, in 1861, there were in England and Wales 125,771 operative iron founders, of whom 123,430 were men and 2,341 females. Of the former, 30,810 were under and 92,620 over 20 years. End note. When in 1790 the first census of slaves was taken in the United States, their number was 697,000. In 1861 it had reached nearly four million. On the other hand, it is no less certain that the rise of the English woolen factories, together with the gradual conversion of arable land into sheep pasture, brought about the superfluity of agricultural laborers that led to their being driven in masses into the towns. Ireland, having during the last twenty years reduced its population by nearly one-half, 
is at this moment undergoing the process of still further reducing the number of its inhabitants, so as exactly to suit the requirements of its landlords, and of the English woolen manufacturers. When machinery is applied to any of the preliminary or intermediate stages through which the subject of labor has to pass on its way to completion, there is an increased yield of material in those stages, and simultaneously an increased demand for labor in the handicrafts or manufacturers supplied by the produce of the machines. Spinning by machinery, for example, supplied yarn so cheaply and abundantly that the hand-loom weavers were at first able to work full-time without increased outlay. Their earnings accordingly rose. Footnote. A family of four grown-up persons, with two children as winders, earned at the end of the last and the beginning of the present century, by ten hours daily work, four pounds a week. If the work was very pressing, they could earn more. Before that they had always suffered from a deficient supply of yarn. Gaskell, First C, pages 25-27. through 27. End note. Hence a flow of people into the cotton-weaving trade, till at length the eight hundred thousand weavers, called into existence by the jenny, the throstle, and the mule, were overwhelmed by the power-loom. So also, owing to the abundance of clothing materials produced by the machinery, the number of tailors, seamstresses, and needlewomen went on increasing until the appearance of the sewing-machine. In proportion as machinery, with the aid of a relatively small number of workpeople, increases the mass of raw materials, intermediate products, instruments of labor, etc., the working up of these raw materials and intermediate products becomes split up into numberless branches, social production increases in diversity. The factory system carries the social division of labor immeasurably further than does manufacture, for it increases the productiveness of the industries it seizes upon, in a far higher degree. The intermediate result of machinery is to augment surplus-value and the mass of products in which surplus-value is embedded, and, as the substances consumed by the capitalists and their dependents become more plentiful, so too do these orders of society. Their growing wealth, and the relatively diminished number of workmen required to produce the necessaries of life beget, simultaneously with the rise of new and luxurious wants, the means of satisfying those wants. A larger portion of the produce of society is changed into surplus produce, and a larger part of the surplus produce is supplied for consumption in a multiplicity of refined shapes. In other words, the production of luxuries increases. Footnote. F. Engels, in Lage, etc., points out the miserable condition of a large number of those who work on these very articles of luxury. See also numerous instances in the reports of the Children's Employment Commission. End note. The refined and varied forms of the products are also due to new relations with the markets of the world, relations that are created by modern industry. Not only are greater quantities of foreign articles of luxury exchanged for home products, but a greater mass of raw foreign materials, ingredients, and intermediate products are used as means of production in the home industries. Owing to these relations with the markets of the world, the demand for labor increases in the carrying trades, which split up into numerous varieties. Footnote. 
In 1861, in England and Wales, there were 94,665 sailors in the merchant service. End note. The increase of the means of production and subsistence, accompanied by a relative diminution in the number of laborers, causes an increased demand for labor in making canals, docks, tunnels, bridges, and so on, works that can only bear fruit in the far future. Entirely new branches of production, creating new fields of labor, are also formed, as the direct result either of machinery or of the general industrial changes brought about by it. But the place occupied by these branches in the general production is, even in the most developed countries, far from important. The number of laborers that find employment in them is directly proportional to the demand created by those industries for the crudest form of manual labor. The chief industries of this kind are, at present, gas-works, telegraphs, photography, steam navigation, and railways. According to the census of 1861 for England and Wales, we find, in the gas industry, gas-works, production of mechanical apparatus, servants of the gas companies, etc., 15,211 persons, in telegraphy, 2,399, in photography, 2,366, steam navigation, 3,570, and in railways, 70,599, of whom the unskilled navvies, more or less permanently employed, and the whole administrative and commercial staff, make up about 28,000. The total number of persons, therefore, employed in these five new industries amounts to 94,145. Lastly, the extraordinary productiveness of modern industry, accompanied as it is by both a more extensive and a more intense exploitation of labor power in all other spheres of production, allows of the unproductive employment of a larger and larger part of the working class, and the consequent reproduction, on a constantly extending scale, of the ancient domestic slaves under the name of a servant class, including men-servants, women-servants, lackeys, etc., According to the census of 1861, the population of England and Wales was 20,066,244. Of these, 9,776,259 males, and 10,289,965 females. If we deduct from this the population, who are all too old or too young for work, all unproductive women, young persons, and children, the ideological classes, such as government officials, priests, lawyers, soldiers, etc., further, all who have no occupation but to consume the labor of others in the form of rent, interest, etc., and lastly, paupers, vagabonds, and criminals, there remain in round numbers eight millions of the two sexes of every age, including in that number every capitalist who is in any way engaged in industry, commerce, or finance. Among these eight millions are... 1,098,261 agricultural laborers, including shepherds, farm servants, and maid servants, living in the houses of farmers. 642,607 all who are employed in cotton, woolen, worsted, flax, hemp, silk, and jute factories, in stocking-making and lace-making by machinery. 565,835 all who are employed in coal-mines and metal-mines, 396,998, all who are employed in metalworks, blast furnaces, rolling mills, etc., 
and metal manufactures of every kind, 1,208,648, the servant class. Of those employed in the textile industries, only 177,596 are males above 13 years of age. Of those employed in metalworks, 30,501 are females. Of the servant class, 137,447 are males. None are included in the 1,208,648 who do not serve in private houses. Between 1861 and 1870, the number of male servants nearly doubled itself. It increased to 267,671. In the year 1847, there were 2,694 gamekeepers for the landlord's preserves. In 1869, there were 4,921. The young servant girls in the houses of the London lower middle class are in common parlance called slavies. All the persons employed in textile factories and in mines, taken together, number 1,208,442. Those employed in textile factories and metal industries, taken together, number 1,039,605. In both cases, less than the number of modern domestic slaves. What a splendid result of the capitalist exploitation of machinery! End of Part 4, Chapter 15, Section 7